All right, if you'll join me back in our study in Deuteronomy, if you'll draw your attention, we left off there in verse 14. We'll pick it up in the verse 15 following that as here we're getting just uh, further instructions. Many of these things, reiterations, reminders, as God, again, remember, is through Moses sort of giving a farewell speech. He's equipping now the next generation, the younger generation, which we'll see in just a few chapters as we finish Deuteronomy under the leadership of Joshua and now go in and dwell and take possession of the promised land. And so God is sort of restating uh, the things of the law, reminding the younger generation of things uh, once again. And as we said in many ways, just a series of sermons. In a lot of ways, you could somewhat say almost a, a series of youth sermons. The book of Deuteronomy really is sort of uh, a youth ministry book. It is God speaking to the younger generation, what he's already taught the older generation. Uh, And of course, there are some things that are additionally uh, added in as well. But we've been getting some of these social and civil laws, how they were to conduct themselves as a people, not only spiritually, but also civilly and judicially in their society. Uh, Verse 15 uh, tells us there that God says to them, you shall not give back to his master, the slave who has escaped from his master to you. He may dwell with you in your midst in the place which he chooses within one of your gates where it seems best to him, and you shall not oppress him. So here God gives instruction or his law in reference to foreign slaves that no doubt were under probably harsh conditions. Again, keep in mind many of the other uh, nations around the people of Israel were very cruel. Uh, They had pagan practices. They were very harsh in the way that they treated their people in the cultures. And so because of that, uh, God understanding is Israel is established as they're there in the promised land. And as they realize that these people uh, live differently, they order themselves differently, the way they conduct themselves and their affairs, their society, their laws, there's compassion Uh, There's justice, there's fair treatment, there's equality, there's not oppression. Uh, No doubt God understood that there would be times where people from foreign lands, foreign slaves, wanting to escape the harsh conditions they were under being oppressed and mistreated, that they would seek sanctuary among the people of Israel and in their land. And so God here speaks regarding these foreign slaves that would be seeking refuge in Israel. And you notice that God's instruction is, in a sense, as these refugees or foreign slaves came seeking refuge in their land, God's instruction to the people of Israel uh, was that they were to allow the people to dwell among them. Uh, And God calls for compassion here for those who would be in that situation. And he says, let him dwell with you in your midst in the place in which he chooses. And he says, and and, and don't further oppress him. In other words, don't mistreat them. They've been mistreated enough, God's saying. Don't further oppress them with more harsh or cruel treatment. The idea here is God is calling them to be a people of compassion that would welcome those who were oppressed and mistreated to show them kindness. And the reason why, of course, is because God sees this as an indirect opportunity for evangelism. Uh, That if they were to push the people back out, uh, it would limit the opportunity for these foreign people, these pagan people from other lands, to meet the one true and living God that they would no doubt probably have a very good chance to discover living there among the Israelites, they would have a chance to come to know Jehovah God. 
as they were among God's people. So God says, look, look at this, not as an inconvenience, but God says, look at it as an opportunity for evangelism to introduce them to the one true and living God that they don't know, but you do. Uh, so God calls here for this compassion to be extended these foreign slaves who had ran off seeking refuge verse 17 he then goes on to say and there shall be no ritual harlot of the daughters of israel or a perverted one uh, basically speaking of of a male uh, perverted one who would do similar to the ritual harlot in the female sense of the notice the sons of israel so referring to the male line there verse 18 he then says you shall not bring the wages of a harlot a female harlot or the price of a dog and that's god's terminology there to describe a male prostitute the price of a dog the ritual harlot was a reference to the female prostitute the price of a dog is God's description to that male which would be functioning uh, as a prostitute or in a homosexual sense, the price of a dog. To the house of the Lord, your God, for any vowed offering, for both of these things, God says equally, notice, are an abomination. There's our word we've seen many times before. That's a word that just means detestable. It's a strong word. It means something that's detestable to the Lord your God. Now, the reason God addresses this here in verse 17 and 18, again, in the land of Canaan where they were heading to, it was common in many of the worship practices in that day uh, among the ancient Canaanite people, we've talked about this before, to intermingle all types of defiled and debauched practices in their worship activity. And one of the things that was a part of pagan worship practices culturally in that day in the ancient culture was to intermingle sexual activity as a part uh, of the practices of worship. And of course, uh, just common sense would uh, uh, indicate this appeal to the fleshly desires, the sensual drives of the worshipers that people would be more prone to want to participate the distorted implication and again because many of these temples had temple priests which basically were in many ways temple prostitutes and there were female prostitutes and there were male prostitutes both alike and the distorted implication of implying that you know you for hire would give some donation and then you would engage in a sexual activity with this female priestess or prostitute or male priest or prostitute for the price of a dog is which is referred to here the distorted implication was that sexual activity is a part of the worship practice involved the fruitful or fertile parts of the body and the implied distorted idea was is that as you engaged in this sexual activity it would curry then the favor of the gods to make you fruitful to make your life fruitful to make god's blessing or the blessing of the gods that you were worshiping uh, make you more fertile and more fruitful in your endeavors and your lives and your land so this temple prostitution process was a large part of the pagan worship practices and so here god says listen i will have none of that intermingled with what i do god says do not you know draw from the ideas of the people of the land he says there shall be no ritual uh, harlots or perverted ones of the sons of israel and he says and don't even bring the wages of those things into he says the house of the lord your god to to pay for one of your vowed offerings god said that would be an abomination now the reason god's saying this is because a lot of times these pagan temples 
would not only do these things as a way of attracting followers, but it was also a really great way to raise money uh, because it was basically in some senses sort of a, you know, it was intended to look like a, it was a, a sacred thing, but it really was sort of, you know, a way of just using a prostitution ring under the guise of, of pagan worship practices. So it was a great way to raise money for the temple. And so God is saying here, listen, I don't want any of that in any sense. And he says, certainly God's refusing any worldly or pagan practice whatsoever, the wages of that kind of stuff. He says, anything or any money that is generated by carnal or sinful purposes, God says, don't even bring that. I don't even want to see that. Don't bring that in and try and use it to, to pay your vows, he says, of some offering you've made to the Lord. That would just be an abomination and very detestable in the sight of the Lord because he disagrees with those practices so strongly. Verse 19, he says, you shall not charge interest to your brother, interest on notice on money, or food, something that will be for necessary survival, he says, or anything that is lent out at interest. To a foreigner, you may charge interest, but to your brother, a fellow Israelite, you shall not charge interest that the Lord your God, notice, here's why, may bless you in all in which you set your hand to do in the land in which you are entering to possess. So, you know, typically in that day when someone fell into hard times, uh, when they were in poverty, when they were struggling to get by, what's being referred to there in verse 19, someone seeking out a loan or needing money, a fellow Israelite, Typically, the loan referred to there, you can see in verse 19, was not somebody seeking for money to be lent to them for a business venture as much as it honestly was, was quite frankly, for survival, uh, for food, or just to be able to have the basic survival needs because they had fallen into poverty and so they were seeking some assistance. And the Lord says, look, be compassionate with people in their situation. And he says, don't exploit or take advantage of their misfortune. That's not a time, God says, if somebody needs a loan to work out terms for interest to think, hmm, I can help him out. And at the same time, you know, I can get maybe five, six, 10% back myself and have another business proposition going on the side here. And God's saying, no, listen, treat people with compassion. Now, as he mentions the freedom to charge interest to a foreigner, but not a fellow Israelite, that's because typically a foreigner would come to an Israelite asking for a loan for a business type venture. And so God says, look, if that's the case, then you can charge interest. That's fine. It's, it's business activity. But if you have a fellow Israelite brother who's fallen into hard times and they come to you for money or for food or anything else for basic necessities and then you have to lend something out, God says, don't charge them interest. Refrain from trying to take advantage of their situation. Don't worry about making the extra money, God says, by charging interest in some way. And notice he says, verse 20 there, at the end of it, he says, act in this way compassionately and not greedily. He says, so that the Lord your God can bless you in all which you set your hand to do. In other words, God's saying, listen, don't worry about making the extra money. Be a generous person. The Bible tells us in Proverbs that he who lends to the poor lends to the Lord and the Lord will repay him. And you know, the Lord is very gracious and wonderful in that way. When, when we seek to be generous and not greedy, we seek to just help someone without necessarily being concerned about, oh, well, what about myself or getting more? Or I could make more money or hold on to more money. God says, listen, God, will, I'll bless you. 
Just be generous. Be, have a giving heart. The Bible says that to lend to those in need is like lending to the Lord. And he says when you give in that way, he says you're lending to God actually and he'll turn around and repay it into your lap with his blessing as he often does. Verse 21, he then says, And when you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay to pay it, for the Lord your God will surely require it of you. And it would be sin to you, he says. Verse 22, notice, you don't have to vow, but if you abstain from vowing, it shall not be a sin to you. So again, no requirement to vow, God's saying. It's not necessary to vow. Verse 23, that which has gone from your lips, you shall keep and perform, for you voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you have promised with your mouth. So here in verse 21 through 23, you can see that God is speaking to his people Israel and telling them that he wants them to take very seriously a word that is tremendously decreasing and disappearing from our culture. It's called integrity. It's called keeping your word. It's called when you say you're going to do something, you follow through with it. When you make a commitment to something, when you say, I'm going to do this, listen, whether it is to pay back a million dollars or whether it's the common courtesy of returning somebody's phone call, you do it. When you give your word to say you're going to do something, God's saying, just do it. And especially, God says, when you give your word to me regarding something, then God says, I think I deserve the honor of you following through with what you vow and you commit to. Now notice, God says very clearly there in verse 22, look, he says, if you abstain from vowing, it's not going to be a sin to you. God says, you don't have to vow. You don't have to vow at all. You don't have to make commitments at all. Now we know typically, you know, typically when people vow, especially when they make a vow to God, and you know, perhaps we've all done it before, we see others do it, typically people make a vow or some promise to God it's almost it's a bargaining chip you know how that works you know lord you know, you know if if you get me this job then i promise i'll start tithing and i'll come to church on wednesday night too you know or lord if if you get me this woman then lord i'll do this and i'll do this and and so we make these vows to god and we think it's almost like a negotiating piece lord if you do this then I vow, I promise that I'll do this. I'm going to start having my devotions. Or, Lord, if you do this, I promise I'm going to, I'm going to stop doing this. I'm going to refrain from this you know, sin that I've been struggling with. And, and we kind of try and bargain and negotiate something. And God's saying there in verse 22, listen, you don't have to vow at all. You don't even have to make a vow. In fact, Jesus says, if you remember in the New Testament, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus just says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. And he says anything else, honestly, is typically usually from the evil one. And what God wants us to understand in his heart is this, is first of all, we don't need to bargain and negotiate with God. That's not how God works. God gives and God blesses because God is gracious. And God wants to bless. And God wants to be gracious to us. And so we don't need to try and negotiate to get God's blessing. We don't need to try and bargain something with God. Well, I promise to do this if you'll do that and you'll come through. That's a wrong perspective towards God. It's not relating to God in the way he wants us to relate to him, which is to, in humility, realize that he's gracious, he's giving. And when we start to make vows, we really begin to put ourselves in an unhealthy place, especially, God says here, 
if you do make a vow, then he says, then you need to take responsibility for it. He says, verse 21, when you do make a vow to the Lord your God, then don't delay to pay it. For the Lord your God will then require it of you. And if you don't fulfill it, God says, that is sin. Because you've committed to do something, you vowed, you've made a promise, and then God says, if you don't follow through with what you promise, then you better confess and repent and ask the Lord's forgiveness because that's offensive to God. It's sin. And again, the Bible tells us in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, when you make a vow to God, do not delay to pay it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you have vowed. Better not to vow than to vow and to not pay. So again, God just giving good instruction to his people here. Be people of integrity, he's saying. You know, be people who are honest, who keep their commitments, who follow through when you give your word, certainly among one another. But all the more, God says, if you give your word to God about something, then he says, God requires that of us, and it would be sin if we don't perform what we have promised with our mouths. He says, verse 23, what's gone from your lips you shall perform for you voluntarily, you chose, he says, to vow that to the Lord your God, uh, what you have promised with your mouth. Verse 24, he goes on to say, and when you come into your neighbor's vineyard. So now you're passing along. This is a law here for the traveler, if you would. You know, you're journeying through the territory, the land there in Israel, and you pass through one of the fields or vineyards of one of your neighboring uh, citizens. When you come into your neighbor's vineyard, you may eat your fill of grapes at your pleasure, but you shall not put any in your container. When you come into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the heads with your hand, but you shall not use a sickle on your neighbor's standing grain. So again, here's a law of compassion to help provide for you know travelers moving throughout the land of Israel. Again, as you're journeying around, you're you know perhaps going from... Uh, you know, the, the southern part of Israel and Judah and you're heading up towards, you know, Galilee in the north there. And as you're traveling through the territory there, if, you know, you got a little hungry around lunchtime, you couldn't just swing over to a local Wawa and pick up a hoagie real quick or, you know, pull into a, a, a local convenience store. That didn't exist. So God says, as you're traveling through, if you're hungry, if you go through a vineyard or you go through a field, you could take what was necessary. You could partake momentarily for what you needed for that moment, for refreshment, for you know, refueling yourself to meet the need. He says, when you come into your grain area there, you can take some grapes at your pleasure, he says. You come into the field, you can pluck some heads of grain to satisfy your hunger. But God says, but don't start taking out your container. <laughs> These are really good grapes, man. How many containers you got there, honey? You know, and just start, you know, basically going through and just loading up your containers full of food and, and or, or taking out your sickle. Hey, this is this is some pretty good grain here. Bring that bring that combine over here, you know, <laughs> just start wiping out the whole field and uh, harvesting their land or whatever. And, you know, we read this kind of stuff. And, and I, as I've said before, you almost think this isn't it interesting that God has to put that in there. But, he, but does he not understand human nature? And he understands human nature. What's he saying? It's okay to partake of some momentary help and refreshment. And that's a gracious provision for you. But what God's saying here is that there should never be an attitude of entitlement. God says, take what you need. Be thankful for that blessing. 
Be thankful for that gracious provision, but don't get an attitude of entitlement where you start to abuse the kindness of your neighbor. You start to abuse the system that's helping take care of you. Again, this was just another form of being able to care for the people of the land in a gracious way. And God says, look, appreciate the system, but don't abuse the system. Don't get this attitude of entitlement where you just start taking advantage because God says, because that's stealing. When you go from appreciating it to abusing kindness and abusing a system, God says, now you're stealing. Now you're ripping off more than you really should be taking in the given situation. Well, chapter 24 now transitions to the subject of marriage, marriage and divorce particularly. He says, verse uh, 1 of chapter 24, when a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanness in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce... In that day, they would basically just three times say, I divorce you, I divorce you, I divorce you. They would sign a document, uh, and that was a divorce. That's what's referred to there. So he writes the certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, and sends her out of his house. The divorce was official at that point. When she is then departed from his house, the wife who's just been divorced, and she goes and becomes another man's wife. So she goes on and remarries another man. If the latter husband, the next one, then detests her and he writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house. So she's not doing too well. That's two husbands already. Or if the latter husband dies, so she just becomes a legitimate widow who took her as a wife. Here's the prohibition. This is the key of the, ver of the section here. Verse 14, God was giving a prohibition. Then the former husband, her first husband, who divorced her must not take her back to be his wife after she has been defiled because the marriage covenant has been polluted by multiple partners now for that God says again notice our strong language is an abomination before the Lord and you shall not by doing these things conducting these kind of practices bring sin on the land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance now you know, these are, are, are challenging verses which cause a lot of contrary, controversy even in the days of Israel. And, and let me just sort of say a few things to help shed some light in regards to some of these things here. Be careful. God is not giving a command here of something to do. God is not saying, hey, this is what I want you to do. When you find someone cleanness, I want you to write a certificate of divorce and send your wife away. Listen, God doesn't contradict himself. And the Bible tells us very clearly in Malachi that God hates divorce. Divorce is never God's ideal. It's never God's heart. God doesn't hate the divorced. That's a wrong idea the devil plants in people's minds. And it's especially, I think, a wrong idea the devil plants in people's minds who've gone through a divorce to make them feel horrible and to just make them feel somehow they've committed the unpardonable sin and they walk around the scarlet letter of D on their head the rest of their lives. Listen, that's hogwash. Divorce is no more the unpardonable sin than any other sin. It's, it's sin. It's a mistake. It's something that's forgivable. It's something the blood of Jesus is able to cleanse and God can bring healing and restoration and second chances. And he's a gracious God. God hates divorce because of all the pain and the baggage and the scars and the hurts it brings to the individuals who go through that process. And anyone who has gone through a divorce process understands that reality. It's a very 
hurtful, painful thing. You know, it, it's never a clean thing where nobody gets hurt or harmed in the process. You know, I've used the illustration before. It's like taking two pieces of paper, gluing them together, and then you try and peel them back apart and see what happens. You're going to have fragments of that paper stuck on each side. There's going to be all types of tears, and it's going to be a mangled mess. And that's what happens when two people come together in marriage, and they're unified, and then you try and separate it. It's, it's a painful process. So God says, I hate the process because I hate what it does to people. I never intended people to experience that kind of pain and heartache and the confusion and the baggage and the effects it has then, the collateral damage on the kids in the process and then the other family members and you know all these kind of things. So again, we understand the heart of God is for two people, Genesis 2, to be in a marriage that is a lifelong commitment till death do us part. Two people, a man and a woman in a marriage committed and staying in that commitment and that God hates the divorce process so we understand then we have to be careful God's not giving a command here that this is something he wants to do what he is doing here no doubt is indicating what he knows will be done he's not giving a command what to do he's indicating that because he's God he knows what will be done and that's this is people will divorce one another it was prevalent in this day it's certainly prevalent in our day God understands human nature and the people will divorce one another that not every marriage is going to succeed because of human weakness and sin. So he's attaching a divine prohibition here to regulate something that was already happening in that day and that would happen in the days of Israel when they went into the land to regulate that divorce from becoming worse and just spiraling out of control and defiling the land and the culture where people basically began to have, if you would, very casual and cavalier attitudes about marriage and divorce. Whatever, I'm done with this one. Done with that. I think I'll take the first one back again. And God says that kind of cavalier attitude will just defile the land. So God's trying to regulate it here by giving this prohibition that if a man put away his wife in divorce and a divorce happened and she goes and marries someone else that later on he couldn't say, I think I want to take a second shot with her, bring her back. And, and this kind of just, you know, uh, the idea is, you know, like, you know, changing spouses, like changing jobs or something. I'm done with this job. I want to go try that career now. I think I'll go back to the first career again. And God says, no, 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 it's much more sacred than that. And so God is aware that people in their sinfulness is it not true? They would find faults and people find reasons to want to terminate their marriage relationship. And though God hates divorce, divorce does occur. It will occur. Uh, and because of that, when it does, God's giving an instruction for it here. Now, the question comes to mind as we look there at verse 1 and 2. What is this uncleanness that's being referred to here? You know, that a husband finds some uncleanness and that becomes the basis for giving a certificate of divorce to divorce his spouse and terminate the marriage. Well, question comes to mind. You know, is that talking about adultery? Well, I think we have to take into consideration we can't be sure if that works because remember, we just saw a few chapters ago in other chapters, prior books we studied, according to the law, what was the consequence for adultery? It was death. So you don't need to divorce somebody. <laughs> Right, the, the, the law said if adultery happened, the consequence was death, not divorce. So you didn't need to divorce somebody because they were stoned to death. It was a capital offense. It, it was a, the death penalty for adultery. 
It was one of the things according to the law. So I don't know. You know, could we really say that that was referring to some uncleanness as far as infidelity or adultery? I don't know. That was part of the argument in that day among the rabbis in Israel. Possibly it's referring to some other thing that caused the desire for divorce. That, And again, we all know people find many different reasons to want to divorce their spouse. I mean, look at the things that perhaps we see in our own culture today. Nothing new is under the sun. People want to get divorced because you know, they're dissatisfied in their marriage relationship. Uh, you know, people want to get divorced because they're unhappy. I'm just not happy anymore. I just don't feel the same way. Or, or, or people say we have irreconcilable differences. Hello? Who doesn't? Who doesn't have your... Listen, I've been married for 21 plus years. I love my marriage. I love my wife. In my estimation, I have the best marriage on the planet. But we have a lot of irreconcilable differences, even after 21 years. And I assure you, if the Lord tarries and we're married 61 years on our deathbed, we will always still have irreconcilable differences. That's what makes it so good, quite honestly, because we complete one another. We're compatible for one another because we complement one another and we balance each other out. I don't want us to reconcile our differences. Her differences and my differences is what makes us a better unit. It's what's balanced us out where we've had extremes and we've brought each other more back to center where we had big extremes before, maybe off the chart to a place where they shouldn't be. So again, but, but people use, oh, we have irreconcilable differences or of course hurts or angers. And all these things become reasons people want to divorce someone. The prohibition God was giving here to his people is because he knew divorce would happen is when it does and the woman was sent away and she became sexually intimate with an ex-spouse or an ex-person. At some point down the road, the husband couldn't decide he changed his mind and take her back, as I said, because that would then begin to perpetuate a very cavalier attitude about marriage and divorce. It would just create this very casual attitude toward the marriage commitment, which God said a casual attitude about marriage is an abomination. A cavalier attitude about whatever, it's just, just a piece of paper. That would bring sinful practice on the land and culture. And God did not want the marriage covenant to be degraded or to be disregarded in such a shallow way among his people. Because God says that will pollute and fill the land with sin. And, and it always has that effect. Now, this section, of course, led to a wide range of interpretation of what qualified as this uncleanness. And two major thoughts kind of developed by the time of Jesus' day, uh, two particular rabbis. One was Shimei, and Shimei's interpretation of what that uncleanness was is was very conservative and strict. And he said, yes, it absolutely refers to nothing other than sexual immorality that he found out in some way that she had been sexually immoral before they were married and wasn't a virgin or she had been unfaithful and committed adultery and that was grounds for uncleanness to then enter into divorce. On the other side of the spectrum, there was a rabbi named Hillel who took a very wide and liberal view. And the wide and liberal view of this rabbi Hillel was that that, uh, that uncleanness, because he said, no, 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 divorce uh, or, 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 or you know, adultery resulted in death, so it can't be referring to that. That uncleanness could be anything. It could be anything that causes a husband to not look upon his wife favorably anymore. And he had this very liberal, wide view that uncleanness could be anything. If a woman talked to another man in public, 
in his estimation, that was she was no longer clean in the eyes of her husband. If she spoke harshly about uh, her husband's parents, the in-laws, imagine that. She was now unclean. And so he had favor, no more favor in her eyes. You know, if she uh, burnt the dinner, you know, if she burnt the dinner up, you know, you're unclean. You, you put too much salt on the eggs. You burnt the toast or whatever. That was unclean. If she annoyed or irritated you, she was now unclean and lost favor in your eyes. Or if you saw another woman in the public square that was more attractive then your wife, well, then your wife was kind of unclean now because this woman was a lot more appealing to you. So, uh, again, you can probably guess, which view do you think was the most popular view? It was the latter one. It was the very liberal, wide view where pretty much you could come up with any reason you wanted to say your spouse is unclean and therefore now you wanted a divorce. Well, remember in Jesus' day, this subject comes up. And in fact, just turn if you would. Keep your finger here. Just turn with me to Matthew 19. I just want to familiarize you with probably a passage you already know. But this is where this comes from. This Deuteronomy 24 passage, Matthew 19. It tells us this, because in that day, as Shimei and Hillel had two different camps and people more embraced the liberal view, obviously, they asked Jesus about this. Matthew 19 says, It came to pass when Jesus had finished these sayings, he departed from Galilee, came to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan, and great multitudes followed him, and he healed them there. Verse 3, look, here it comes. The Pharisees also came to Jesus testing him. Now, again, usually they don't want an answer when they're testing him. They're just trying to tangle him in his words. Uh, catch 22. Saying to him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Look at it. For just any reason. That's what Hillel's saying. Rabbi Hillel says that's the case and, and everybody seems to embrace his view in Israel today. That was the popular view. He's referring to Deuteronomy 24 there as they're questioning Jesus saying, is it lawful to divorce his wife for just any reason? Whatever you feel is justifiable reason. Jesus answered verse 4 and said, have you not read, look what he says, he who made them at the beginning made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh, a, a, a unified unit. So, verse 6, then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined, let not man separate. So do you see how Jesus answers their question? Jesus says, look, you're trying to ask, is there any reason for divorce? Jesus said, let me take you back to God's divine ideal. And he takes them all the way back to creation. He takes them all the way back, listen, to the other side of Genesis 3, which was what? Where sin entered into the world, and that's where the whole problem came. Again, remember, marriage is the only institution that we have among us the only institution that comes from the other side of the fall of sin. And he says, God's original design, he says, forget about your debates about when it's right and when it's justifiable to get divorced. He says, do you want to, are you looking for a real answer? And he says, let's go back to the institution of marriage before sin even existed among humanity. It was one man, one woman, God created male and female, 
perfectly designed to complement one another. And he says the two became one flesh, a miraculous union, a divine union, so sacred that he says here, and what God joins together, let not man separate. He says that's the answer that you really need. That's the answer that you're really looking for if you want to know the heart of God about marriage and divorce. Verse 7, of course, they wouldn't settle for hearing that. They said to him, why then, Deuteronomy 24, why then did Moses command, notice that word command, to give a certificate of divorce and put her away? Again, Moses didn't command that. That's what Jesus is going to say here. Well, why did Moses command that we could give, give a woman a certificate of divorce? He said, verse 8, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, look what he says, permitted, in command, he permitted you to divorce your wives, but from, here it is again, but from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality, very limited, very exclusive. So Jesus seems to side with Shimei in that very, very just exclusive, strict, conservative view. Whoever divorces his wife except for the case of sexual immorality when the covenant has been tarnished by that violation and marries another commits adultery and whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. So again, what's Jesus referring to here? He's referring to that Moses gave that permissible option because he understood the hardness of the human heart and the hardness of the human heart when sin happens is some people are just unable to get beyond that pain. They're able to get beyond, not able to get beyond that strong of a covenant violation that their heart is so hard and they're not able to forgive. They're not able to let it go. They're not able to reconcile and to, to be willing to extend forgiveness and retrust in love again that he says sometimes there's, there's that permissible need. And so Jesus speaks here in Matthew 19 of this reality that a provision was made by God, a concession for the hardness of a human heart when such pain happens. But please understand, this was basically a divine concession to human weakness, Jesus is saying. It was never the heart of God. It's a divine concession to human weakness. God allows for it, but God never desires it still. It's never the heart of God. The heart of God is forgiveness, reconciliation. God permits it when there's adultery because he understands the pain and damage, but it's never his preference, never his preference at all. Come back to Deuteronomy 24. Enough on that sensitive subject. We get one other thought here regarding marriage in Deuteronomy 24. This is a little more of a bright spot. And maybe if this was done, there would be less divorces. Look at this. Deuteronomy 24 verse 5. When a man has taken a new wife, he shall not go out to war or be charged with any business. He shall be free at home for one year and bring happiness to his wife whom he has taken. So isn't that interesting? God says when a young man or whatever age man gets newly married for the first year of his marriage, he was exempt from going out to battles and warfare. He'd have enough of those to fight at home, right? Anybody who's married understands that concept. You know, he was not to go out to battle. 
so that he could accidentally get killed or be away from home. That wouldn't be good because he couldn't then generate a child and the family lineage could be jeopardized as well as the fact that he would be away from his wife or he wasn't to undertake any new business ventures. I don't think it's indicating that a husband was refrained from working for a year. The idea is that often they would travel to conduct business. Again, the idea is being away from home here. The reason why God says instead for the first year he's to be free so that he can do what? Focus on his wife. Focus on his marriage. And, and lay a good solid foundation in that marriage relationship. And that was to be foundational that for the first year, his greatest priority and his top focus was not to be, oh, let me go out there and conquer some battles and win some territory and do this and succeed in business and excel. God says, no. You got married. Your priorities change now. Your top priority is that woman. Your top priority is investing in that marriage relationship and bringing pleasure and happiness and letting that woman help adjust to marrying you. The, the old King James says that you may cheer her up for a year. <laughs> that part of that's really true. Why you got to cheer her up? Because guess who she just married? <laughs> and, and all of a sudden she's got all your bad habits to deal with now. So you've got to spend a year trying to cheer her up because about a week after the honeymoon, she's starting to get kind of depressed because she realizes, this guy isn't everything I thought Flavio was. Oh my goodness. And I committed this for life. So God says for a year, focus on that marriage. I mean, I think this is wonderful. Again, because what would happen as he detached from doing all those other things and for a year focused on making his wife happy and pleasing her and learning what made her happy, learning how to suit her and care for her and bring pleasure to her heart, do you know what it would do? It laid a good foundation for the rest of that marriage. I don't think God is saying, okay, you got to commit, make her happy for a year, then you can go fight all the battles that you want. And the rest of your life, he goes, hey, what do you want? I gave you a year, babe. That's not the heart of God. What God knows is that if a husband gave himself to that as his priority for the first year and he put his focus there, it would lay a good foundation for a pattern of how that marriage would be the rest of his life. That the rest of his life, he would say, you know, yeah, there are battles out there, but there's no battle out there that's worth losing what I have right here. This is the most special, valuable thing. And, and, and you know what? Making her happy that's the favorite thing I do in my life. And over that first year, as he invested in his wife and invested in the marriage and he gave up the hobbies and the battles and all the business ventures and advancements, all those things would come into proper perspective and he would realize as a new husband, hey, this is the top priority, my marriage. And all these other things, they're just secondary peripheral things that supplement and kind of complement the marriage relationship. So man, just... I think really great wise counsel shows you the, the priority, the value God sees in marriage. And man, I think just great, great wisdom there. When somebody's young, newly married, this is great advice to give them. Hey, that first year, don't get entangled in all kinds of other stuff. If anything, pull back and really put your focus and your emphasis and your top investment into your marriage relationship. We'd have a lot more stronger marriages perhaps if we honored some of that great principle there. Verse 6, he says, No man shall take the lower or upper millstone 
in pledge, for he who takes one's living in a pledge. Again, the upper and lower millstone, both were necessary to grind the grain. And so here God says, if you're going to take some kind of a pledge or the idea is collateral for a loan, some collateral, uh, don't take either the upper or lower millstone because without one or the other, you can't grind the grain. And then therefore God says they can't eat. So God says they need that for survival. So be compassionate again in their business dealings is what he's saying. Verse seven, he says, if a man is found kidnapping any of his brethren, so here's the law and punishment for the crime of kidnapping. If a man is found kidnapping any of his brethren of the children of Israel and mistreats him or sells him, then the kidnapper shall die and He says, you shall put away the evil from among you. So again, here is another, according to Old Testament law, another what we call capital offense, another crime in that day that was basically punishable with the severity of the death penalty. God said to be very severe when someone was guilty of kidnapping a child. God says kidnapping them, selling them, using them. Again, notice to mistreat or to sell them. Man, I look at that and I think, boy, uh, my heart resonates with that. My heart resonates with that because God says put away that kind of evil from among you there's God's heart again towards those who would kidnap an innocent victim and then exploit them for financial gain look at our culture today to the the same degree today we have people we have terrorist groups individuals who who kidnap children who kidnap innocent victims and then sell them as sex slaves and exploit people and use people And, and God says that should be dealt with with extreme severity That's the heart of God towards it because God says that's an evil that corrupts and damages and defiles the land. So God says the kidnapper shall die to be put away the evil from among them. Verse eight, he says, take heed in an outbreak of leprosy that you carefully observe and do according to all that the priests and Levites shall teach you. Just as I commanded them, you shall be careful to do. And remember what the Lord your God did to Miriam on the way when you came out of Egypt as she was struck with leprosy. Remember when she complained and criticized her brother Moses, uh, she was dealt with severely as she received the leprosy. So again, verse 8 and 9 here, God just reminding them, Leviticus 13 and 14, we dealt with this two chapters in great detail. They were to quarantine the person with the leprosy outbreak and do certain things in regards to handling leprosy among them. Verse 10, when you lend your brother anything you shall not go into his house to get his pledge you shall stand outside and the man to whom you lend shall bring the pledge to you so if somebody gives you a pledge in a business deal or a loan uh, and and they haven't given you payment or whatever and you go to their house and they say look i'm gonna make good on i just uh, i can give you something here god says don't be harsh don't go barging into their house and say you're gonna give me something all right i'm taking the big screen and i'm taking this and god says no you just you stay outside (laughs) You be compassionate, you show patience and kindness, and he says, and let them bring out to you uh, what they want. You know, very interesting. Here's where we get, again, some of our laws and ideas of the right to, you know, having private property and somebody, again, even the police having to get a warrant before they have a, a, a legitimate right to come entering into your house. These are where some of these laws that we operate in our own culture with come from, that you couldn't just go barging into someone's house uh, and taking that upon yourself to do that. Verse 12, and if the man is poor, you shall not keep his pledge overnight. 
you shall not in any case or shall in any case excuse me return the pledge to him again when the sun goes down that he may sleep in his own garment and bless you it shall be righteousness to you before the Lord your God. So God refers to here, again, as in that day, if a person was poor, they had nothing, but they had their outer garment. That was like the cloak that they would wear. And the outer garment was not only a coat, but it also was sort of their blanket to keep them warm as the temperature would drop in those desert-type climates during the day. And he says, so if a poor person comes to you and they say, listen, you know, I, I, I really, I need a couple dollars to survive and I'll pay it back to you or can I work? And he says, well, what can you give me? I'll, I'll give you my outer garment. And during the day, he didn't need his outer garment. So here, take my cloak. You know, he's going to want that cloak back because the temperature is going to drop at night. But let's say unforeseen circumstances happen. He comes and says, I can't pay you back. I, I don't know what to do. I'm sorry, I can't pay you back. God says, look, be compassionate. Don't keep that cloak and say, well, fine, you're out in the cold and you sleep in the cold all night. And then as that guy's laying there, instead of blessing you, he, he's cursing you. I can't believe this guy is so mean. He keeps my, you know, making me sit out here in the freezing cold, no compassion. And God says, no, be compassionate. Even in that situation, be gracious, be merciful. Give him his cloak back. Again, the idea God's saying here is, look, even when people fail, be merciful to them. Be merciful to them. Their life's already hard enough. Show them some mercy, God's saying. Be merciful in your personal dealings, in your business dealings, even when people fail. He says, you shall not oppress a hired servant who's poor and needy, whether one of your brethren or one of the aliens in your land within your gates. Each day you shall give him his wages and not let the sun go down on it, for he is poor and has set his heart on it, lest he cry out to you against the Lord and it be a sin to you. So they were to pay their day laborers every day. They weren't to come in from the fields. And again, typically this is how poor people work. They, they work for their daily food. And you get paid twice a month or you know once a week. Daily, they needed their money as a day laborer to buy a meal that night for their family. So God says, Again, show integrity. If you commit to pay someone as a business owner or an employer, he says, you pay them what you owe them. No giving them excuses. Oh, well, maybe come back tomorrow. Things are kind of tight today. With God says, no, that would be sin if you do that. Verse 16, fathers shall not be put to death for their children, nor children put to death for their fathers. A person shall be put to death for his own sin. So there God speaks very clearly of personal responsibility personal accountability there each one for his own actions and his own sin ezekiel 18 deals with this in great detail but here again god's saying everybody is personally accountable for their own decisions so in that day in israel uh, you know if a, a child had done something wrong they violated the law a father couldn't step in and say no no please please I'm already 75 years old. I know Junior, he's only 20 years old. Yeah, he's a knucklehead. I know he did all these things wrong. But listen, just I'll die in his place. God says, no, it doesn't work that way. He needs to be accountable and personally responsible for his own sin. And in the same way, it says here that, that children uh, could not be put to death for their father. They couldn't step in. The idea is each one was personally responsible for their own sin. If you did something deserving of death, you face the death penalty by yourself. God's way, God's will is that each human being take personal accountability for their own actions, choices, decisions, and behaviors. That's the way it's supposed to work. Listen, and, and we do a huge disservice 
Not only when we don't take personal accountability for our own actions, but when we sometimes step in and interfere by trying to stop the consequences from coming upon someone else who's done something wrong that needs to take responsibility for what they've done wrong. And a lot of times parents do this for their kids. They avert the opportunity for reality discipline. Reality discipline is you did it, eat the fruit of it now. Because that's what will teach you. That's what will help you learn. As parents, we need to be careful that we don't stick our hand in and spare our children, whether they're younger, I think in some ways, and even when they start to become young, that we don't spare them from reaping what they sow. How else are they going to learn? They need to experience these things so they become responsible, accountable individuals. And we need to stop there. Let's stand. Let's pray together. We'll have Chris come and...